What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome or welcome back to the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast. Please ignore the fact that uh, we said we were going sober and there are white claws now on our hand. You're not seeing it. It's an illusion. You are getting very sleepy. You don't see anything. But yes, welcome back, guys. It is now Sarah's turn. Please forgive us for the late output. But yeah, it has been a rough week with my shitty situation and you know just other things in life as well it's just you know you gotta pray that it ain't your shit <laughs> <laughs> but we are back and it is now sarah's turn so yes everyone's gonna think that i had diarrhea that was not the case it's no, just it's like you're being very vague about your shitty situation <laughs> my kid had to poop but he couldn't. Am I allowed to say that? I just don't want to give information that I'm not allowed to give. <laughs> I'm sure if anyone's ever attempted to potty train a child, they understand. Mm. If you are a parent, you can make with that quote what you will. <laughs> but it wasn't mine. <laughs> That's for sure. Just want to clear the air there before we go. But... Yeah, Sarah, what are we talking about today? Today, I will be talking about the leaf killer. Um, some of y'all may heard of this case. It's... <sighs> it's a creepy one. It's just one on more of the random and weird sides of violence and true crime. I do have a few trigger warnings for today. There's brutal violence, kidnapping and rape of a child, and animal cruelty. Hmm. And you know what? I feel like those kind of give some things away, but... You gotta be warned. As soon as I saw the first picture of this, I was like, buckling up. It's gonna be rough. Yeah. So, um, it's not for the lighthearted, but here we go. Yeah, let's... Yeah. Yeah. We are in a small town just outside of Mount Vernon, Ohio, a kind of rural place where no major crime and violence uh, was usually happening. So no one would anticipate when on Wednesday, November 10th, 2010, a 911 call was made in the town of Apple Valley, Ohio. The manager at the local Dairy Queen made this 911 call because one of her employees, 32-year-old Tina Herman, had not shown up to work for her 4 p.m. shift. This was very unlike Tina. She was very reliable and a single mother of two children, 13-year-old Sarah and 11-year-old Cody uh, Maynard. They had their father's last name. Tina's manager stated on the call that she was concerned because, again, this is very unlike Tina, and she also knew that Tina and her boyfriend had been having some trouble. In fact, they had been broken up at that point for about a month. 
So a deputy would go to the home where Tina and her children lived with her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend to conduct a welfare check. And that happened at about 7.25 p.m. that evening. The deputy would knock on the door but got no response. They noticed nothing out of the ordinary from the outside of the home, so they left and went about their shift. The next morning, Thursday the 12th, a separate 911 call was made to report a second woman missing. This call was made by 41-year-old Ron Metcalf, who said his girlfriend, Stephanie Spring, was missing. He hadn't been able to reach her. She's not responding. Hadn't seen her. Stephanie Spring was actually a good friend of Tina Herman's, and they had plans together that previous day on Wednesday, the 10th, because Stephanie was helping Tina find a new place to live because Mm. Tina and her boyfriend had broken up and she was planning on moving out with her children. The sheriff's office would contact the school of Tina's children just to find out that Sarah and Cody had not shown up for school that day on Thursday. They were able to find out that they were dropped off at home by the school bus on Wednesday, but were absent Thursday. This added a new level of concern because not only are they now dealing with two missing women who have a connection to each other, but now seemingly these two children are missing as well. Tina also failed to appear for work again on this Thursday, so not long after receiving the call about Stephanie being missing, another 911 call was made by Tina's manager. But this time, she was calling from inside Tina's home. She was, like I said, very concerned for Tina, and so she took matters into her own hands and actually used a back window at the home to gain entry, and she would be met with the most horrifying scene. She just, she was concerned. She felt like something wasn't right, but I don't think she could have ever imagined the gruesome slaughterhouse that she would walk into she would stay on the 911 call quote there is blood everywhere end quote the sheriff's office would respond to the home immediately to which they were now declaring a crime scene and not only declared tina herman her children and stephanie too missing but in grave danger mm. The crime scene has been and was compared to look like a slaughterhouse because quite literally there was blood everywhere. There were no bodies found in the home, if that wasn't obvious because the family is still missing, but there was a large blood stain in the carpet in front of the front door in the living room area, along with blood splatter on the walls and on the furniture. There were also drag marks in the blood going from this spot in the living room back down the the back hallway. There was also distinct blood splatter and saturation in Sarah's bedroom and in another back bedroom, maybe uh, the master, I think. And both of those rooms were located off that back hallway area. 
two additional drag marks in blood were present coming from those bath or bedrooms converging into the hallway all three drag marks in blood led to the bathroom in the bathroom again blood everywhere all over the bathtub the shower curtain there were even pieces of flesh There was blood all over the floor, the walls, the sink, and the toilet. There was a high water mark at about two inches high in the tub. Um, I believe they saw this on the tub itself and also the shower curtain. So this meant that at one point, the tub was filled that high with blood. Oh, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, so this tells us that the bathtub was most likely used as the location for dismemberment. What the fuck? There was no evidence of a firearm being used to cause all of this blood, making the assumption that brute force was the cause for this vile scene. Jesus. With the... three distinct areas of blood concentration there was the concern of at least three fatalities that had taken place the crime scene tells us that the perpetrator was able to spend quite amount of time in the house committing these acts and seemed quite comfortable like not too worried about getting caught or getting walked in on A detective also noticed that there were two separate sets of footprints in blood, which means that they had either two perpetrators or they had a survivor with the perpetrator. One of the shoe impressions was from a Nike shoe sized seven and a half, which they were actually able to match to Tina's daughter, Sarah. They looked in Sarah's closet and found actually the same style of Nike shoe that matched the impressions. It was like the Nike Air, those ones that were real popular at the time. Everyone's The Air Maxes. Everyone's wearing those right now. So she had that same style, and of course, it was size seven and a half. Mm. This footwear impression evidence shows that Sarah was alive, most likely, possibly, And, of course, we have seen cases where teenagers are involved in the murder of their families. But in this case, that was not really considered at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Detectives strongly believed that Sarah was alive and had been kidnapped. So now we have four missing people. Three of those, Tina, her 11-year-old son, Cody, and Stephanie, are unfortunately presumed deceased because of those blood saturation location or blood saturation spots. Uh, this caused a an extreme urgency to locate 13-year-old Sarah and as so, well as figure out where bodies are. What evidence did police have to believe that Sarah wasn't involved and that she was in fact a victim in it all? Because of who she was as a person, Mm -hmm. described by 
fellow friends or whoever. Um, I, I didn't see or read any distinct evidence pointing to her not being involved. They just made an educated decision, guess. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just want to know. Because I know uh, with that one Canadian case, they were like, oh, we opened her locker and we found a photo of them burning in the house. And we're like, mm, maybe she might be responsible. Right. So. Yeah. Because we have seen, there are plenty of cases out there where a 13-year-old girl is fully capable of... Um, yeah, fully capable Especially and with the older male's help. Mm-hmm. Help. Help. <laughs> help of doing it, so... Right. I'm just throw I'm totally not making accusations. I was just a genuine not to uh, intrude question because right. I do remember this case, but um, I feel like I don't remember half of what you just said. So now I'm like, fuck, how does this end? So. Right. Well, I mean, that thought definitely crossed detectives' minds that it wasn't something that they could completely discount, but after analyzing pretty much all the possibilities, they realized quickly that that was nothing this was to do not with really it. the yeah. case. Yeah. So detectives continue to process the crime scene um, while they are just getting a grasp of what could have possibly happened. There were several Kroger grocery store bags on the floor in the kitchen that were still unpacked. So a receipt found in one of those bags was time-stamped just after 12 p.m. on Wednesday the 10th. So this suggests that Tina was interrupted as she got home from the grocery store um, and before she was due at work at 4 p.m. that day, which mm. we know she didn't make it. So. Yeah. There were no immediate signs of burglary, but detectives did notice that the garage door was off of its tracks a little bit, and the bottom right side was lifted a bit ajar off the ground. So this is the presumed entry point for the attacker, and also in the garage was a Walmart grocery bag with heavy-duty garbage bags and two heavy-duty tarps in it. There was no receipt. That's sketchy. I don't like that. Oh my but God. it was an immediate red flag for detectives. Yeah, it was just, it was out good. of place. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Oh, my and, God. That's like murder material. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just not something that, you know, you see people every- have... If you have every day, you I know, have all that in my camping shit. But yeah, yeah, not if you're, ready to go. If you're not pitching a tent, or if you're not <laughs> covering some garden stuff to you know save from the crows, but <laughs> you know don't kill crows because they're acceptable, and I want to make friends with them. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So you want to make friends with crows? It is my life goal to have a crow bring me a treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I take walks and I will bring treats and I'll try and give them to a crow and I'll be like, yeah, follow me home. Come give me a shiny <laughs> treat. The show I watched for this, which is where I got a lot of firsthand information from detectives. Um, and they also showed really great crime scene photos that I was unable to locate anywhere else online. But... Also in the garage, they showed a little bit of blood on the floor 
And then missing from the garage or the home was Tina's vehicle. It was a Mm. Ford 150 truck. Mm -hmm. So detectives put out an all-point bulletin or APB to all local authorities to aid in the search for Tina's vehicle because her truck missing from the scene could possibly lead to further clues as to who the attacker was due to the assumption that they possibly used her truck to leave in. Luckily, Tina's truck was located very quickly. Actually, you know, that same day while the crime scene was still being processed. So it was found Thursday, November 11th at 6.55 p.m. Only seven miles from the crime scene, Tina's vehicle was located. It was abandoned in a parking lot of a local college in the area. The area where her vehicle was found was searched for further clues and, most importantly, for any deceased individuals or surviving possible surviving individuals. Mm-hmm. But nothing came from this search. God. Now, if y'all are, like, screaming at me through the speaker, the boyfriend, the boyfriend, oh, my God, what's his deal? Because it's always the significant other, right? Mostly, yeah. Mostly. Well, let's find out because, as I mentioned, Tina and her children, Sarah and Cody, lived with Tina's on and off again boyfriend, Greg Borders. Oh, well, see, when you say stuff like that, yeah, it does make me think of boyfriend a little bit. Yeah, I mean, rocky relationships are always a red flag when it comes to these things. Especially murder investigations. Right. When a, when a gruesome crime takes place and there's a rocky relationship involved, it always points huge suspicion towards the significant other who the crime was not committed against. So mm-hmm. it was actually Greg's house that Tina, Sarah, and Cody lived in, and that's why Tina specifically was looking for somewhere else to live mm-hmm. because it was his house. Yeah. As in most missing pers- person cases... Authorities first turned to Tina's ex-boyfriend, Greg Borders, as being basically their number one suspect. There was conflict within their relationship, and it wasn't really a secret. As I mentioned, they were broken up at that point for about a, a month prior, or for about a month, but they were still living together, and they seemed to be doing so pretty amicably, although they had tension and it was rocky they still i mean i guess they seemed kind of cool yeah they Um, were at least uh on talking terms right so stephanie sprang tina's friend who was also reported missing had plans to help tina go out and find an apartment on the afternoon of the 10th Greg Borders was, of course, brought in for questioning on Friday, November 12th. He told detectives that him and Tina had been on and off, that they would butt heads over certain things, and that they had been broken up for about a month. When questioned about his day and whereabouts on Wednesday the 10th, he stated that he woke up and left the house at around 3.40 a.m. for work. He worked at like a warehouse type of thing. I think like an Amazon fulfillment center or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And after work that day, he had already arranged to spend the night at a friend's house. So the next day on Thursday, he and his friend whose house he spent the night at had a tea time to play golf. So Greg's punch cards for work were confirmed. Uh, he was seen on shift that day by multiple co-workers, um, you know, that Wednesday. And then both Greg and his friend were confirmed to register at check-in for their game of golf that next day on Thursday. All of his alibis checked out. They were actually rock solid. And this alone basically made him eliminated as a suspect. Yep, that'll do it. That'll do it. Greg was also very compliant and cooperative with all search efforts. Um, Aside his home being a crime scene and them having to basically have full access to it anyways, he gave his full permission to do whatever they needed to do, so... Apparently, there were a few other possible suspects that I didn't get much information on, but these potential suspects had alibis, and they all checked out as well. So, mm-hmm. Really nothing meant, for the police to go off on. Right. This meant that their suspect likely was a stranger, and authorities had to kind of take a step back and start from zero, relying on pure evidence, what they had. And those cases tend to be few and far in between. And I think more in particular, those cases are the ones that go the most unsolved. Because there's just the least amount of evidence for police to go off on. Right. Well, fortunately, they had just the right amount of evidence. And I, I almost made, I almost typed in a joke here. Like, oh, they had to start from zero they had to rely just on evidence the detectives had to detach actually do their job (laughs) wow Wow. look at that (laughs) um but the authorities in this case really seemed to get the job done i really couldn't see or read anything that they did wrong of course who knows uh what they don't put in articles but Another good point to make, though, is in these small towns where these crimes never happen, that's also a trouble point in investigations because those deputies, those sheriffs, they don't have, yeah, they don't have that experience to easily um, maneuver. I forgot his name one episode. I'm going to forget it in this episode, but uh, where they were talking about the fire department coding and how... You know, basically back then it was people in the fire department understood how fires got started based on what the captains told them or like what their mentors told them before that, how to put Mm -hmm. them out, how to do their jobs was passed down by the person that was doing it before them. And so when you get into really any profession during a certain amount of time, it is was not regulated ever. It was, you know, passed down by word of mouth. Right. And just experience. Like, you gain knowledge and skills by doing the thing. And if you don't do it, then the only knowledge you can gain about it is from word of mouth or whatever. So, I think, you know, a balance of both is really required. (laughs) 
detectives start to piece together what they believed happened. Um, Obviously, since the bodies or, you know, presumed bodies weren't at the crime scene and detectives had this idea that they were dismembered in the tub, as well as Tina's vehicle being away from the scene, they assumed that the offender had transported the bodies or body parts from the home in Tina's vehicle. Now, one thing I didn't get information on either was what kind of evidence was found in Tina's vehicle. You would think that they, you know, would find prints or blood or fibers, but I didn't get any of that information. So this leads detectives to focus on evidence they did have, which was the garbage bags and tarps that were in a Walmart bag in the garage. Mm. This ends up being really the the piece of evidence that catches their killer. This is a domino effect into finding their guy. So Apple Valley, being the small town it is, there was just one local Walmart. So detectives took their, they shot their shot and went there to search through transactions for one matching garbage bags and tarps. They did find a transaction matching the items. They were purchased around midnight, Wednesday the 10th. They were also able to obtain surveillance footage of the person at the checkout counter who bought these items. Oh, damn. The, they were only able to gain so much information from this, but it was enough. The man they were looking for was an adult male, 25 to 40 years old. This man appeared to be in no hurry. He was very calm and casual. He seemed to know this Walmart. He walked straight to the aisles he needed to to grab his items, which suggests that this man is local. From the he goes area. to this Walmart mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Or at least As- has the app to look up the aisles. <laughs> they didn't have that in 2010, but I use oh, that yeah, app yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know now that I'm lost at HEB, I always tell Charlie, I'm like, look up that item. Yeah. (laughs) He has taught me such a world of technology. It's insane. Well, and there's coupons too on the app, which are the same ones they have in store on the yellow tickets, but still. Those are the ones that I typically look for. But yeah, he, the search engine has become a big, a big, I'm like, give me your phone. Let me see the app. (laughs) Aside from the tarps and garbage bags, this man bought a camo shirt off the clearance rack and even a turkey sandwich. Mm. Yeah. He used cash to buy these items, so they weren't able to pull credit card information or anything like that. Okay. There was footage from outside of the Walmart that showed this man getting into a Toyota Yaris, which is a small kind of vehicle. Okay. But unfortunately, the license plate was not visible on the footage but still this was enough detectives continued to follow these breadcrumbs and did a database search of everyone who owned a toyota yaris in that area and out of all the search results because apparently there was quite a few they would come across a man who looked very identical to the man in the walmart footage 
This man would be Matthew Hoffman, whose home address was only four-tenths of a mile from the crime scene. That does not help him at all. Neither does his criminal past. Oh, gosh. After identifying this Hoffman man, a deputy actually recognized him (gasps) because he had pulled this man over near Kenyon College after the family, the Herman family, and Stephanie were officially declared missing and in danger. And Kenyon College was the parking lot where Tina's vehicle had been found. This deputy pulled Hoffman over before Tina's vehicle had been found, and so they had no reason to suspect anything about the location they were at or anything like that. It is the most frustrating thing how they get so lucky and mm-hmm. then it's like, why do I get pulled over? Right. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to go home. <laughs> Although Hoffman would be let go. Uh, I for, And I for, I don't even know if they said why he was pulled over. I don't think so or else I would have put it. But um, even though Hoffman got let off with a warning and was good to go, this was still vital information uh, later on after Tina's car was found because this place is him right there. So Matthew Hoffman, for the most part, seemed to have been a fairly normal person up until a few months before these crimes took place. Hoffman was born to Robert and Patricia Hoffman in 1980 in Warren, Ohio. He's said to have been a quiet kid who apparently came across as strange to other people, but no one ever took him as being dangerous. He was just weird, I guess. I mean, yeah, because if you would have asked anyone how I was at that age, same answer. In 2001, when Hoffman was, I guess, around 20, 21... He was sentenced to eight years in prison for first-degree arson, burglary, and theft after setting a condo on fire in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. After he was released from prison, I'm not sure if he ended up serving the full eight years. Again, little information, but Hoffman's behavior started to get more strange His neighbors reported that he started trapping and killing squirrels, even sometimes grilling and eating them. Oh, absolutely not. No. I, you know what? If people eat squirrels, you know what? That's fine. But... Like, only if you really need to to survive. Like, if you're stuck in the wilderness. There are so many other meat options out there. Like... If you like hunting, like, go kill a deer. Or they're overpopulated in some areas. So, or maybe rabbits. Like, a squirrel. Mm-hmm. There's not even... Mm. Mm. I know. Maybe, maybe Matthew Hoffman wishes he was a squirrel. Because one thing about him is that he seemed to have a major fascination, or I should say obsession, with trees and leaves. 
His neighbors also reported that he would spend hours perched up in a tree in his backyard, just like watching his neighbors. Oh, he he wanted to be a squirrel. Absolutely. That's why. Oh, Oh. unbelievable. Sarah. (laughs) It was like word vomit. Okay. Detectives just knew this was their guy uh everything just added up to to him yeah so i i couldn't (laughs) i I could see that so they would obtain a no-knock search warrant for his home which meant that they were able to just barge in um so they did this on november monday november 15th The SWAT team slash authorities would approach Matthew Hoffman's house just after daybreak. And when they busted in, Matthew Hoffman was on his couch, apparently with a weapon in reach. He didn't want to comply at first. He was, like, confused as to why they were there. Uh, But he was handcuffed and escorted outside. Okay. At least he went semi-peacefully. Yeah. When authorities made their way through the house, Hoffman's rumored strangeness was deaf present throughout the home. There was a very large pile of leaves in the living room on top of a tarp. And Kristen, you have pictures of all of this. As um, soon as I saw it, I knew. Oh yeah. My God. And I mean, it's just weird. Like, who has a huge pile it's... of leaves literally covering the whole span of the room? Like, one, the amount of bugs that I would be terrified right. to bring into the house by bringing those leaves in. Two, you know, a funny thing that happened today is um, a leaf flew into Charlie's beer. <laughs> Them leaves are fucked up. Yeah. One of the detectives thought that this big pile of leaves could have been deep enough to conceal or cover bodies with. So without disturbing too much, he kind of called out uh, and kind of poked through the leaves, but there was nothing. It was literally just a huge pile of leaves in this man's living room. I wonder if squirrels do a weird thing with leaves that maybe makes that significant. Like a weird uh, ritual, (laughs) like a weird body burial of leaves. I don't know if they, like, use them to sleep on or what, but I wouldn't be surprised. Other rooms in his house, such as the bathroom, were lined wall to wall with leaves and plastic bags. Plastic bags layered on top of one of each other, staggered, covering the walls. All of which... All these leaves were believed to have been collected collected within a matter of recent days. They were like semi-fresh leaves. Yeah. And that's a big oh, pile to get within yeah. a semi-amount of days. Uh, it said that Hoffman was an out-of-work tree trimmer at the time. He had to have been out of work in order to do that. I'm not going <laughs> to I'm sorry. I'm not going to lie. That is some unemployed bullshit. Like, that is an insane amount of leaves to bring into your house in, like, a one to, I don't know, what's semi? Like, two, three, four days? What's yeah, like, four-ish. Four? Three. Even yeah, then. like, 
it covers the it covers okay i know y'all think i'm stupid right now but it literally covers the entire floor like and one where do you find that many leaves i understand maybe within i don't know yeah i mean since he was a tree trimmer maybe he knows a good spot for maybe you snort some cocaine and you just <laughs> rake your life away for six hours and this you, was you also a, a rural area um there there were trees leaves around, everywhere so. and it's november so leaves have fallen they're falling yeah everywhere <laughs> but it's just the amount of energy because i right. do that for 30 minutes and i'm done i need mm. a two-hour break yep Authorities really didn't understand the significance of the leaves. Uh, They thought it was really random and unusual. They were just like, what the fuck is this guy's deal? They kind of guessed or figured that the leaves in the bags on the walls were used as uh, kind of like insulation to muffle sounds, basically. Mm. Although Hoffman later claimed that the leaves were for insulation, like to keep his house warm. Uh, But detectives couldn't help thinking about his previous arson conviction and how possibly the leaves were there to to act as an accelerant in the event he needed to burn evidence of his crime. Exactly. That is, I mean, the amount of leaves there, yeah, it's going to... Flume right on up. Flame right on up. Besides Hoffman's excuse for insulation, I don't think detectives really ever found out why he had all those leaves in his home, um, if there was really any underlying reason. But um, just with everything done and like, but if that wasn't enough, Kristen, his freezer apparently contained just a couple of red popsicles and two dead squirrels. <gasps> Dude, your squirrel theory is right on point. Yeah. And I didn't even think about that until I said it. There's like probably is some psychological thing behind him, squirrels, the leaves. And I will get into that later. Um, oh. Because it all just continues to get weird and stay weird. So... Also, in his home, a blackjack was recovered. Um, basically, it's like a heavy-duty tool that could have been used to commit blunt force trauma. As well as a heavy-duty knife. So these two items were thought to be the possible murder weapons. SWAT made their way through the home, declared the upstairs and downstairs clear, until they noticed a basement door. Oh my god. Four of them would make their way into the basement and down the basement steps. Uh, you know, it's one of those where you open a door and there's steps right there to go down. And this is when they finally find Sarah, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard. Maynard. Sarah was tied or chained actually up on a bed of leaves in a crawl space in what looks like one of the walls in the in the basement. And there's pictures, of course, of that. Um, Sarah was wearing only a makeshift pair of plastic pants that also served as a diaper 
because she was not allowed to use the bathroom or, you know, shower or anything. She was only fed rotten food and spoiled milk. When she was rescued, she had no idea how many days had passed since she had been in captivity, which was about four days. Wow. So that just speaks to the volumes of trauma that she went through. If she's that, like, disillusioned. And what's insane is that for what she went through, she was incredibly strong and brave. In the show I watched, um, Twisted Killers by Oxygen, if y'all want to watch it, Sarah is featured now as an adult and shares her account of the whole crime and her kidnapping. She stated that she was laying in the crawl space when she heard a loud noise. She was scared shitless to death because she thought someone was coming down the steps in the basement to hurt her again. But it was the police coming to rescue her. They, you know, asked if she was Sarah. Uh, She said yes. They let her know that they were there to rescue her. And finding Sarah was huge in this case because that was what was of the essence time-wise. And it's said that once they found her, uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. No, I would be, I am sobbing, but I would be sobbing. Right. So this story does have an incredible survival aspect to it. Mm. And just, I'll continue with how brave Sarah was. Um, I genuinely can't believe that. That is truly amazing. Sarah said when she stepped out of the basement, out of the home, and back into the world, she finally felt safe again. Mm. She was immediately taken to the hospital and was described as obviously being brave, as I mentioned, but also composed. She was able to tell detectives what happened immediately, but also not knowing the full extent of what happened to her mom and brother and to Stephanie yet, she asked police if she'd be able to go to school that next day because she was worried about how much school she had already missed while she was in captivity. Girl. That would have not been me. I would have been like, where's my sick note? I'm not ever going back. (laughs) Can you please excuse this? I've been kidnapped. (laughs) That is, I can't even begin to imagine. Like, I can't say that I would want to think that way, but that is truly amazing that some people think that way. Wow. Yeah, props. Yeah, because, you know, you're the doctors and you're the leaders of the world. Because that could not be me. I follow you, not the other way around. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So Sarah's account of what happened Wednesday, November 10th. She says, before going to school, she and Cody do their normal morning routine. They say goodbye to their mom, you know, gave her a hug and kiss, said, I love you, bye, and they go off to school. Uh, I believe, you know, they ride the bus, so... Mm. They got home from school that day. She and Cody walk into the front door. When Sarah shuts the door behind her, she looks down to take off her shoes when she sees blood. She starts yelling out for her mom, but gets no answer. When suddenly, a man rushes out from the hallway area towards her and Cody. 
Sarah runs to her room out of complete and utter fear. And when she she locks herself in her room and she hears her brother Cody yelling and screaming from Mm. the living room. She stated that she doesn't know why she didn't turn back to help Cody other than just being like frozen in fear and not knowing what was happening. You can't ever like. And like, how could you just imagine that this random guy is in your house to kill you? Like, it's just not always the first thing. Such an impossible. And at the age that you are, it's just your body reacts how it reacts. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much we mentally want it to react a different way, it, you know, it has a mind of its own, and yeah. we cannot b- be responsible for that. Like, it no. is just not, it's not your fault. It's not anyone's fault. You did what your body thought would be best in that moment to survive. Fight it's or just, flight. Exactly. Fight or flight. I mean, Sarah's in her room. As she hears her brother screaming, she also notices blood in her room and on the walls Mm. then all of a sudden this man busts through her bedroom door with a bloody knife in his hands oh my god he puts the knife up to sarah's stomach ties her hands blindfolds her and gags her the man tells her if she screams he will kill her he apparently leaves her tied up for a little bit in her room and then this is when he's said to drag cody to the bathroom after he's done in the bathroom he puts sarah over his shoulder and lays her in a vehicle as she's still blindfolded and tied up sarah had no idea as she was laying in the vehicle that she was laying right next to the garbage bags of the remains of her family and good family friend. Hoffman would take off driving. Sarah said that he was driving, or it felt like he was driving fast and crazy, but it wouldn't be for long, and this is when it's assumed that they arrived to his house. Because it was like four point something miles, right, between that one four tenths of a mile oh my god so it's like not even extremely a under a mile yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> i heard <laughs> like whatever four and i just is. my mind took a thing of its own i guess it's under half a mile away i guess yeah it's four uh, tenths of a mile mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> four tenths when they get into the home the man takes off her blindfold and literally pushes her down the basement steps She's looking around, scared out of her mind, and notice that there are leaves everywhere. On the second or third day of Sarah being in captivity, trigger warning, the man would sexually assault her and would do so repeatedly as he held a knife against her. During those four days, Sarah sat tied up in complete darkness She said she was mentally exhausted, but worried for her mother and brother because she still just doesn't know where they are or what happened. When she asked where her mom and brother were, the man said that if she brought them up again, he would kill her. Oh, my God. 
Sarah just, knew, like, she had a gut feeling that something serious and awful had happened, yeah. but she still had this sliver of you hope. You want, you don't want to believe that. And, right. like, she, I she would believe until believe the they very were okay. moment. Yeah, until, like, I, I hear it from myself, from someone official, like, I will believe that they are okay. It's just, God, I can't even imagine Although Sarah had been rescued, the other three missing, presumed dead, had not been located yet. They were not at Hoffman's home. See, and that's what makes it even just more wild. Because who's to say that they aren't, you know? Only one person knew where their remains were, but he wasn't talking. Of course not, because he's a fucking (sighs) Matthew Hoffman was obviously taken into custody as they raided his home, but uh, he was taken to the sheriff's office to be questioned. And during his interrogation that lasted hours and then days, Hoffman was not speaking. Like, he wasn't saying a word about anything. Uh, Detectives tried and tried. Their main goal was to get the location of the remains. Um... In the show I watched, they showed brief footage of some of his interrogation. There was one point where it looked like he tried to use sign language to communicate, but it didn't look like real sign language. It looked like he was just trying to signal words. And like, with and his they hands. can get an interpreter in there easily. I yeah, think. Like, maybe, um, or at least get someone to interpret that. And there was even some talk of him potentially being in a catatonic state, but. There is a uh, a psychiatrist in the show who mentioned something about because Hoffman was described as having psychopathic tendencies or being a psychopath, that it was clear that his silence was a strategy because... I was about to say, I mean, I don't really believe it. He's probably just, like, protecting, but... Right, well, because... Um, now, don't quote me on this, but the psychiatrist said something along the lines of when someone's a psychopath, they don't feel the same slash no, quote unquote normal emotions as non-psychopaths. Exactly. And usually mm-hmm. when someone goes into a catatonic state, it's triggered by trauma or anxiety. There are there are several reasons why you can go into a catatonic state. Um, but when you don't have an underlying illness, such, like mental illness, it's usually by trauma or anxiety or mm-hmm. such. Um, and because he just didn't feel those emotions that way, that it was pretty much impossible for him to be catatonic. Um, very interesting, really. Yeah. But it was clear that his silence was a strategy, uh, which is an asshole move. Ohio allows the death penalty as capital punishment, and detectives would be seeking it in this case, but they themselves saw an opportunity to try and leverage with Hoffman. Four days after Hoffman was arrested, they offered him a deal. No death penalty for a full confession. And this includes the location of the remains. Mm -hmm. Matthew Hoffman would claim that all of this was due to a burglary gone wrong. 
He chose Tina's or Greg's house to burglarize because it was isolated. It didn't have neighbors super close. He stated that he camped out in the woods across the street from the home while he basically surveilled the house. He watched and scoped it out. And I'm not sure for how many days, but it was at least a day or two. Mm. He would wait for Tina to leave, which she did on that Wednesday. And this is when he entered the home through the garage door that was off its tracks. He hid in the home and waited for about an hour or so. And this is when Tina arrived home early from the grocery store. And this is when we don't know if he was just in there robbing the place for an hour and he got interrupted or he was literally waiting in the home for Tina for to come her to arrive. And, right. Mm-hmm. But when Tina arrives home from the grocery store, Hoffman struck her several times in the head with the blackjack. And apparently he said, like, she wouldn't pass, like, she was still conscious mm. after hitting her several times. Oh, no. And at the same time, Stephanie had plans with Tina to help her find her new place to live. So she, Stephanie shows up to the home unexpectedly to Hoffman and not prepared to confront two adults. He stabs Tina in the chest while Stephanie runs to Sarah's room. He chases her down and stabs her in Sarah's room. Mm. He then drags both Tina and Stephanie to the bathroom where he dismembered their bodies in the bathtub. Within all of this commotion, the, uh, I don't know if it was Greg's dog specifically or the family dog, but it wouldn't stop barking. So Hoffman kills the dog as well. Stop. Those are just regular animal sounds. A couple hours later, the children would come home from school quote-unquote, before he could finish doing what he was doing or finish cleaning or robbing or... It just doesn't really add up, in my opinion, that he was just there to rob them, but... Yeah, I don't think. Like, and why would you go through all of that hassle if you were there to just rob the place as soon as one person interrupts you, you kill them, you leave? Or you're at least, like, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense for you to do all this waiting out and all this nonsense. Like, you, you're you clearly motivated in other ways. It's just, like, honestly, just be real. Just be honest right. at this point. It's fucking... Yeah. Your excuses are stupid. So the children walk in the door. As I mentioned, Sarah runs to her room. This is when Hoffman stabbed Cody in the back of the head. And then several more times after Cody was already dead. Mm. Hoffman then tied and gagged Sarah while he dismembered Cody's body in the bathroom. Hoffman then placed Sarah into Stephanie Springs' vehicle, along with the garbage bags full of dismembered body parts, and then drove them to where his car was parked about a mile away. 
and uh, he would transfer Sarah and the garbage bags into his car. So I assume he left Stephanie's vehicle on the side of the road and anything to do with her vehicle was never mentioned in my research and the investigation. So it's just one of those things. Yeah. He took Sarah to his home and tied her up in the basement while he went to hide the garbage bags containing the remains of Tina, Cody, and Stephanie. And if he was searching or, and if he was stalking the house for one to two days, like I'm sure he saw Sarah and just decided, oh, that's why I'm going to enter. I'm not going to, you know, rob the house. I'm literally going to rob Sarah. Right. And like, you probably see them riding the bus to and from school. Like you. Exactly. You're surveilling. Yeah. You know what time it, they're leaving it's and just, coming back. Like, yeah. And she's the main focus. Like you're waiting. Because uh, didn't you say she was getting groceries? Or no, it was the mom getting groceries. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and especially with his criminal past from Colorado, the burglary, the arson, um, I think he kind of relied on his past motif to kind of, to play off get of away that, with this it. go around. Exactly. Yeah. Like, not get away with it, but to, like, make it seem lesser than it was. Kinda. Well, let's be honest. Like, not as planned as it was. Abusers get away with more than abused women trying to kill their abusers, so. Apparently... Hoffman, at some point, would go back to the scene in an attempt to burn the house down to destroy evidence. Mm. He drove his car and again parked it away from the house and then took Tina's vehicle, her, her truck, to go get some gasoline to use as an accelerant. But Tina's truck apparently stalled and stopped working and that's when he left it abandoned in the parking lot at that college and that i guess nixed his whole plan of burning the house down uh, i don't even think he made it to get the gasoline damn then in his statement matthew hoffman finally shared the location of the bodies of the remains which is what the detectives were really fucking waiting for I shares. just hate okay. when they, sorry, and I just hate when they drag it out fucking seriously. Like, that. like, what's the point? And it's. Uh, You're just doing it to torture the family, basically. Well, and you know why I think he did it is because he was like maybe hoping that he wouldn't be caught and, or maybe he'd be let go. But once he realized he was in deep shit, he had to tell them. Because uh, this location is a location where he could have gone back to and, like, visited. So, uh, uh. the location he gives is a hollow tree. On Thursday, November 18th, detectives follow Hoffman's ins- uh, instructions and directions on how to get to this hollow tree. They didn't let him physically show them go and go with them yeah, because of they could just tell it was like a sexual yeah it was like, like something off about or, it oh my god and like why a hollow tree oh my god i know you were not 
serious about that squirrel thing, but like ever since you said that, I'm like, it all makes sense. It's just really gross. I don't know. I, I genuinely do not like it. Yeah, same. This hollow tree was located in the Cocosing Nature Preserve, which is a remote, heavily wooded area. Obviously, it's a nature preserve, so. Yeah. Very big, very wooded. They find a tree with a big hole in it about seven to eight feet off the ground. The hole was like up there in the tree. They can see black garbage bags kind of like through the (sighs) hole. I think someone got up there and looked into it and they could see the garbage bags. So they decide to bring a tree surgeon out to the location, which I didn't know tree surgeons were a thing. I kind of maybe assumed just because plant stuff gets so weird, but I will say that that for a murder spot is not something that I would have called. Like, that is, and how did he get up there? Probably a ladder. I don't know. Yeah. Or he fucking climbed it like a squirrel. (laughs) Like his squirrel abilities, he was able to climb that. Oh my God. Because this is a hollow tree, they were unable to just reach down the hole and grab the bags. And that's why they bring out this tree surgeon. So they cut an opening on the tree on a lower reachable point, which able to, which enabled them to reach in and recover the trash bags. Inside the trash bags were, in fact, the dispersed remains of Tina, Cody, and Stephanie. Oh, my God. And there is a picture of the tree kind of where they cut a square out of it Hoffman's only request upon giving directions to this tree and the remains was that after they were done with the tree he wanted pictures of the tree as proof that they didn't harm the tree please tell me that he didn't they don't give him the pictures I don't know if they did I really I, hope they did. It just it shows you what he really cared about. Obviously, it's like sexual gratification, and I don't want him to have it. I genuinely right. don't. So he obviously feels a certain way about trees. Ugh. The tree, in one sense, could represent kind of a sacred place or burial ground, kind of, in his mind at least, that he, it's a place he could have gone back to and visited you know in a weirdo way but uh, and i mean that wouldn't have been a spot that anyone would have looked at until either the tree fell which yeah or i don't know any other reason because i don't see people like searching seven to eight feet high up in the ground like you're searching you're searching underground you're not searching above ground that's insane i've never heard a method like that so it's definitely like I can't imagine detectives looking for it there. So give it another, if you're lucky, 25, if not like fucking two, 400 years when that tree naturally falls down on its own. I mean, you don't know. I don't know what kind of tree it is. Me either. Oh, I just know it's hollow. <laughs> That's really scary. Well, yeah. the, if it was hollow, then it probably was going to fall maybe sooner, but still... Yeah. Um, so Dr. Kate Termini, Termini 
a forensic psychologist, and I think she was the one who talked about the whole catatonic state thing not being possible. Because she was in the show, and I have a quote from her about Hoffman's most likely fetish towards trees. She said, quote, This would not be the first individual who had a sexual attraction or affiliation to trees. End quote. The term. Uh, that's for it. This, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. no, give me more. I need well, to know more. Well, just because it's it's a real thing. The term oh. for this is dendrophilia. Okay, but like, no one has should be killing over this. I mean, no. Get a grip. Get a branch. I don't know. Like literally, <laughs> grow a branch and get over it. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> So stacking all the weird shit I've told you about him and his trees and his leaves and his squirrels, put that all together, and it's it's very likely that he has dendrophilia. Although I don't ever think he admits to being sexually attracted to trees. Um, it can but be it's obviously, presumed. yeah, the way he it was the leaves were so present and. Uh, it, it was yeah, just, that probably makes more sense. It's than a little more theory. than just like a normal interest. Yeah. Another that part makes, of Hoffman's. Oh, sorry. That makes more sense than the squirrel theory. Yeah. But still, it could be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Another part of Hoffman's deal that was made with authorities was that he would plead guilty to the 10 felony counts against him. Mm. Um, This also meant he would have no trial. Yeah. So these charges included aggravated murder, gross abuse of a corpse, burglary, kidnapping, and rape. On January 6th, 2011... 30-year-old Matthew Hoffman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Sarah Maynard, showing her strength once more, wanted to read a victim impact statement at Hoffman's sentencing, but was advised against it. So she still went to the sentencing hearing, Mm -hmm. but uh, the prosecutor actually read a written statement from her Mm. before the judge and jury. Okay. Part of it read, quote, I'm not scared of you, Matthew. I'm going to stand up for myself and live my life, end quote. Good. As as you should. Because literally, like, he, you're alive and screw him. Right. He is, does not matter anymore. It's not worth it. Mm-mm. Live your life. Enjoy that sunset. Easier said than done. So she is just incredible. The fact, and that's, it's so hard. Like, I I can't even begin to feel how it would be getting over that. But the fact that you can look at the sun and be like, damn, that's beautiful and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. And because of dark tourism, tourism, um has always been quite a popular thing you know those of us who have a more of a macabre interest like dark tourism so out of caution and respect to the family the division of wildlife actually removed the tree that hoffman used to hide the bodies in so it's no longer i appreciate that yeah Yeah. because it's it's just not needed 
No. And it's hollow. It's maybe it's going to go down soon ish. Yeah. In 20, 50 years, anyways. And I'll close it out with what I have about the victims, which I have, you know, more on some than others, but that fucker got what he deserved life in prison. Um, Rest not in peace whenever you die. And there are no trees in prison, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) God. Please do not send this guy leaves. Please. Ew, 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 ew. I just got, like, really nasty visuals of what one would do with, like, leaves. Please try to be more like Sarah in your everyday life. Because, Sarah, you are a fucking badass. I am truly just beyond me. That's what you're talking about. As much as I do want to say that to you too, no, the other Sarah, yes. Not a badass. Stop. (laughs) Yes, both Sarahs in my life, y'all are doing amazing. Keep doing what you're doing because wow, I'm amazed. Truly. No, um, I have not met the trauma that Sarah Maynard has met. She's way stronger, way more brave. Um You're a badass. We don't need to tell you that. You are living your life and you are enjoying it. And that is all that matters. Wow. 32-year-old Tina Herman was a fun-loving and hard worker who was defined by her caring nature. And really, all she cared about was her children and being a good mom. Her favorite thing in life was being a mother. Mm. She liked sunflowers and collecting dolphins and loved watching and cheering on her children as they participated in sports and wanted nothing more in life to f- than to fill their lives with happiness and comfort. 11-year-old Cody Maynard was shy with an innocent personality and was simply, as we can justify it, was at the wrong place at the wrong time well at the right place but at the wrong time yeah no one deserves what they got um but he deserved the family that he had and it's just sad how families families like that seem to be the ones that get targeted yeah 41 year old stephanie spring a single mother who worked three jobs Mm. who was also generous with what little she had Also a very caring and giving person. 13-year-old Sarah Maynard was once a bubbly 13-year-old who she says her mother would be proud of the strong-willed person she has become at a a young age. She carries the memory of her mom and brother with her forever. In the days and years following the loss of her family, Sarah has spoken about her experience um, in several places and times in hopes of potentially helping future victims of kidnapping. And not just helping them, but giving them hopes of survival, surviving those kidnappings. Hopes of life after being kidnapped. Exactly. Yeah. Sarah also vowed to live a happy, fulfilled life just like her mother always wanted. 
and said that when things get hard, she pictures her mom and brother telling her that everything will be okay. Okay, now I am crying. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And that was the murder of Tina Herman, Cody Maynard, and Stephanie Sprang. The awful kidnapping of Sarah Maynard, but also the amazing survival, all committed by the twisted Matthew Hoffman, a.k.a. the Leaf Killer. You know, I thought I remembered this case, but no, I did not. That was bad. Thank you, but no, thank you. Hmm. Well, it's, it's just one of those things where It's when amazing you think you that can, you like, can... expect something out of a criminal or whatever. It's like, you, there, I'm never, I'm always surprised. Always. There's always something. The human mind never ceases to amaze us. Yeah. The strength through that all, though, really really gets me i think that's what chokes me up so much right really hard to find you just can't possibly imagine um unless it's happened to you you cannot sympathize with one imagine that situation that two imagine being happy after going through that right i'm not happy now how am i like it's it's amazing it's really inspiring and yeah I'm going to go enjoy the sunset. Go have a beautiful... Go, go look at your trees and yeah. try not to... Think about have your oh my thoughts. God. Yeah. I, mm. I feel like anytime I ever encounter someone who's like a little extra obsessed with trees and leaves, I'm going to be like... Mm-hmm. Please back away. Please... Um... <laughs> not trying to be mean i'm just trying to be safe yeah oh, like unless gosh. you're a three or four year old five year old collecting leaves because it's fun don't do it yeah it, like the, it's one thing to enjoy a tree it's one thing to manically rake trees for three days and put them all in your house yeah well don't ever do a case like that again Please. <laughs> I'm sure you not promising anything. I'm sure that you will, but wow, we at least take a break. Maybe next few episodes from now. Oh my god. Okay. I'm gonna try not to um find a leaf for the rest of today. <laughs> Jesus. If you liked it, please go to therapy. Um if you didn't like, comment, subscribe anyways, because it really helps the show out. At R-A-R-W podcast. And send us an email if you have any cases that pique your fancy that you want us to talk about or if you just want to say hi. Red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com. And thank you, Sarah, for that case. And I um, hope that the vibes are higher next episode. I still have not picked my case out. so Because the next episode is our 100th episode. Oh, yeah. 100th episode. Bye.